G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. A conversation today around the difference between values and virtues. When we talk about Christian values, we're always aware that someone else is promoting a different set of values, sometimes completely contrary to our own. Our special guest today says the common talk about values is a symptom of something seriously wrong at the very heart of our society. He argues that the language of values is a problem because values are individualistic and subjective expressions of our feelings. The differences are very apparent in the tensions between religious belief and some of the issues prevailing today, like sexual identity. Our guest today says what is needed is a return to the language of virtues. Virtues are a set of objective moral norms about which there is general agreement about what they are and what they stand for. Virtues appeal to our shared human nature rather than the expressions of just personal feelings. So let's welcome our special guest today. Peter Curty is a Senior Research Fellow in the Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society Program at the Centre for Independent Studies. He's also Adjunct Associate Professor in the School of Law at the University of Notre Dame, Australia, an Adjunct Research Fellow at the Centre for Christianity and Culture at Charles Sturt University. He's also authored a number of books. I'll mention those shortly. Uh, Peter's also an ordained minister in the Anglican Church of Australia. Peter Curty, a special welcome back to 2020. Thank you, Neil. Great to be back with you. Uh, well, Peter, uh, let's talk about this topic that you've been researching and writing about of recent times, uh, talking about culture and talking about values and virtue. But let's start right at the very beginning, at a foundation here that I think will be very important, and ask what has actually happened to our culture in Australia. Some are arguing, uh, as you are, that things are looking as though they are cracked. Uh, others are saying our culture is actually fractured. Uh, what are your thoughts on where our culture is in Australia right now? Well, my starting point with this work is that sense of unease that many of us have, that something has shifted for the worse in our culture, in the way we live. You know, our, li our, our live and let live lifestyle seems to have changed. We've, it's becoming harder uh, for people to freely express uh, points of view. Um, and and what we know broadly as political correctness has become um, you know much more aggressive and is asserted much more much more firmly. So we see, for example, free speech. Um, we would, as, as Australians, we would normally take for granted the right to freedom of speech, but increasingly we hear this phrase "hate speech" that is used to close down what you and I would understand to be just uh, the free exchange of ideas. But it's not just speech. It goes further than that. I think we can see bonds of trust uh, 
being broken in commercial life. We had the Hain Royal Commission into Financial Services earlier in the year, which showed that, in fact, many of the assumptions we had made about the trustworthiness of our financial institutions was unwarranted. So that sense of trust having uh, having been come, having come under strain, um, dying is becoming a medicalized event uh, that's acted that's that's requ- that's supposed to be um, provided on demand by the individual rather than a natural ending of life and you and I have talked about this uh, in a, in an earlier discussion and religion of course has become a very divisive issue uh, so divisive in fact that now the Morrison government is looking at a law enacting a law specifically to uh, protect religious freedoms now, these are things that we would have taken for granted a generation ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago in our society. But there is a sense, I think, a growing sense that things have shifted, things have changed. And I was curious to find out why, what's going on here that, that gives rise to this feeling of unease. Well, you have touched on some things which I mentioned in the introduction, but before we get on to differences between values and virtues, while you're talking about this polarisation that we can see is happening, there are some on a different side to what we might put ourselves on as Christian believers, and they're thinking that what are you talking about, this idea of being cracked or even fractured? Uh, they're thinking this is all a good thing, that all of these changes that are happening, and you mentioned a whole lot of different changes in there, and we could add to that list as well. But but a lot of people think this is just wonderful, that the old traditions are being set aside and there's a whole lot of new things, and people see that in some sense as a level of newfound freedom. Uh, give us your insights here into the fact that there are those that say there's nothing wrong with what's happening right now. Well, one of the big changes that's happened in Australia since the 1970s is the rise of and the implementation of anti-discrimination law. And that has been a good thing. So you can't discriminate on grounds of race or gender or sexual orientation. And that's been a very good thing for our society. That's an, that's a, a de- so we've seen a decline in what we might call bad discrimination. But we're seeing this move now into a different kind of realm, I think, because anti-discrimination law is now being used to shut down any kind of speech, any kind of activity that is seen as impinging upon the rights of particular groups or of individuals. So we're seeing a decline of bad discrimination, but at the same time, we are, I think we're seeing a decline in the capacity of people to associate freely, to air their points of view freely, to run their businesses freely, to choose who they will and will not serve freely, because anti-discrimination law is now being used as a way to compel people to behave in a certain way, uh, being used in a way to compel people to perform certain services, commercial services. Um, and I think this is broadly around the idea of identity politics, that identity politics has, has, has taken hold in our society so that differences based on race or, or gender or sexual orientation, which anti-discrimination law was meant to overcome, those differences are now being asserted in a far more aggressive way, making it far harder, I think, for, for, for people to, to exchange freely with one another uh, in our society. And so people get to use those anti-discrimination laws as 
weapons in order to get their own way, to assert their own set of values here, and those values, uh, which we'll get to, uh, based on those sorts of emotive uh, feelings orientation. So we're less ready to live with difference because of this polarisation that's happening. That's correct. I think that's a very good summary. Uh, it become, the emphasis has shifted from what's what from the communal, from the community to the individual. What I feel, what I need, what I want uh, is paramount. And I, you can use anti-discrimination law to compel you or anybody else to do what I want. And we've seen that again and again uh, in Australia in, in recent times. I mean, almost every week, not a week goes by without some, some story coming from some part of this country uh, in which anti-discrimination law is being used by an individual to assert, uh, to make, to make, to, to assert their what they claim to be their rights, to make demands uh, on other people. So, Peter, as we look into decades gone by, and we've seen a united Australia, uh, the idea that it might be virtues that united us then, and there's been a change to this idea of values which are dividing us, uh, give us some insight here into where you think the change happened, or uh, you did mention the 1970s there, but, but this change that's happened from virtues to values, and it seems to have accelerated. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it is a process. Um, I think it has accelerated, but I think it is a process. There isn't a particular point in time at which the change was made. But I think as... Uh, and and there, I think there are a lot of factors that go to explain this. One of the one of the factors is what's been happening in our universities uh, over the last uh, 20 or 30 years as postmodernism, which, uh, of course... It, in broad terms, is about the deconstruction of, of, of social, of agreed social reality, so that postmodernism would teach that it's, it's very much what, my, I, what something means for me is different from what it means for you, but which, un, which undermines the notion of, uh, of an objective truth. I don't want to get too philosophical about this, but postmodernism has meant that, has led to the idea that what is true for you it need not necessarily be true for me. So we all can have our own notions of what is true. Once that starts to happen, uh, the, the shift away from community or society's understanding of what is true happens, and the shift is away from what society thinks to what the individual thinks. And with that, we get the rise of individual preference and the primacy, the, 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 the emphasis given to individual preference. In other words, postmodernism is one of the factors that, led up, that has led us to the point where what I want is more important than what you want or what society wants. Let's talk our Australian context for a few moments here while we set this foundation for our conversation today. Uh, you say that here we are in Australia, we live in a democracy, but not just a democracy by way of any sort of mechanical method of how we vote, but a liberal democracy, and that uh, highlight, of course, our freedoms, our free democracy. Give us some insight here into uh, the the soil in which these sorts of discussions about virtues and values actually grows. 
Well, that's you've put that very well. That we we live in a in a liberal democracy, a secular democracy. It must be emphasised because we're not run by, uh, you know, the bishops or the uh, or the imams or the rabbis. They have a place, part to play in our life, in our society, but they don't make the laws, which I think is a very good thing. So we live in a secular democracy, where each of us is equal before the law. Um, those who are registered to vote have a vote that is equal in weight and, and value. Um, and I think the, we, we have a, a general acceptance, I think, of, of some agreed norms and principles that govern our, our, the life of our secular democracy. So that's a, a very important point. Um, I th- speak about culture because culture is a term that's often used quite loosely and, and in some, sometimes in a very unspecific way. I think of culture as the, the sediment in which our democracy or the roots of our democracy grow. So culture comes first. How, that, how we live, what are the norms, what are the principles uh, by which we order our life, that's the soil in which our liberal democracy has its roots. Once the soil starts to change, the, the, you know, as it were, the plant, to pursue that image, the plant that's growing in that soil will also start to change. So I think we're seeing that gradually happening in our political life as individuals and groups assert their rights to, uh, to, to a, a priority of view. They want their point of view taken uh, without regard to the well-being of of the wider society, of the health of our democracy. Uh, let's, uh, while we're in this sort of forming a, a conversation here, and uh, it might sound complicated, and I did say to listeners, uh, just lean in a little closer to the radio today so you can pick up uh, the issues that are, are being discussed here today. While we're talking about virtues and values, uh, we sort of set out uh, this idea that values have become very individual and uh, very emotional feelings driven. Uh, let's just quickly uh, come to this idea of virtues for a moment here, Peter, because if we're describing virtues, what's different about virtues uh, that we can describe here so that uh, we can understand where the shift, where the divide has happened? I think that's a really good question. And you referred to this in your um, introduction. The virtues are, I mean, we have a set of virtues in classical philosophy. Aristotle, a Greek philosopher, named a number of what we call cardinal virtues, wisdom, justice, temperance, and courage. We have the theological virtues, which we derive from the Christian scriptures, the most print, the famous ones being, and the most notable ones being, of course, from St. Paul, faith, hope, and charity. So we have a, we have secular virtues, as it were. We have theological virtues, which are um, particularly identified with the Christian faith. But they are, uh, they are objective standards. And what I mean by that is that we can all agree what we mean by wisdom, or what we mean by justice, or what we mean by courage. There is a, there is a common agreement about what those words, what those principles, what those norms mean. But they're also personal, because I can take the principle of courage, the virtue of courage, say, and I can assess whether or not my, be- my behavior, my response to something matches up to that community standard, that agreed common standard of virtue, of, of, of the virtue of courage. So virtues 
are objective norms, they are shared in the community, and they are personal. Values, by contrast, are completely personal. And it really, you can think of values as being essentially an economic term. I value It's the value that I place on something. So I can say, uh, Neil, I value being a guest on your program. I value the conversations that we have. And that's a good use of the word value. But then to start talking about the values that we might have uh, as if they can be shared in common starts to make little sense. Now, I know the word values is used like that, and I've had interesting discussions with my colleagues at work about this. I know the word values is used like that, but it can't actually bear that meaning because what is a value to me will not necessarily be a value to you. You will value things that I do not value. It becomes very difficult then to talk about shared values. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson, a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Well, I did say you need to lean into the radio a little closer today because it's a deeper conversation, but an important one just the same, talking about the difference between values and virtues and a very, very powerful foundation that we've laid over these past 15 or 20 minutes just talking through values and virtues with our special guest this hour, Peter Curty, a senior research fellow in the Centre for Independent Studies. Peter, as we continue to build on this conversation, let me come back to this idea that here we are in Australia living in a democracy, a democracy that has as one of its virtues the idea of freedom. As we're talking about a displacement of virtue here, what does it mean for our democracy if we see these changes continue? I think that's a really um, a good question. That's an important question. Because, of course, in a democracy where we, as I was saying earlier, we, we have, you know, each, we each have a vote. Uh, those of us who are registered to vote, we each have a vote, and our vote uh, counts e- equally. It does mean, though, that the outcome of an election, when you know, exercise the democracy, the democratic right to vote is exercised, it means that not everybody is going to get the result that they want. Some will lose, some will win. Some will feel defeated, some will feel victorious. But in a democracy where we accept that principle of equality, the, the equal right to vote, uh, equality before the law, we accept that difference and we live with difference. And one of the wonderful things, of course, about Australia is that governments change uh, and it's all very peaceful. There are no tanks on the streets. There is no, uh, you know, there is no martial music being played on the radio. So we live with difference and we learn to live with difference. uh, And we accept that as part of our democratic life. The problem with values, and I don't say that this is, uh, I'm not going to uh, saying that this poses an imminent and serious threat to our democracy, because it, but it's changing our democracy, I think, with the rise of values. It becomes harder to live with difference because there's this emphasis on what is important for me, what I value, what I feel is right, whether or not I feel offended, whether I feel hurt, without regard to other people's points of view. So when it becomes harder to live with difference, and I argue that the use of values language does make it harder to live with difference when it becomes harder to live with difference. So it imposes a strain on our democracy because one of the principles of our democratic life, living with difference, 
becomes harder and harder for people. And so they feel that an election uh, result, if they don't like it, is unwarranted, or the government, if they don't agree with the government, they don't have a mandate. They want their point of view to prevail at all times. That, I think, poses a serious threat to the cohesiveness of our, of our society. It's not going to lead to martial law or anything like that, but it does mean it becomes harder for us to accept that other people's points of view might have to prevail over ours. Uh, let me take you to something important that you've raised when you talk about values language, uh, because in any culture, and uh, our Australian culture is no different, the way we talk about the things that we value, the way we talk about the virtues that we desire, this is very important. And of course, as you have this, as you say, an emotive, feelings-based rise of values language, uh, it does persuade, and sometimes in a bad way, uh, a division between people uh, in a community. Uh, Let's talk about language for a moment, because this is the way a culture really functions according to the common language that we use. That's right. Um, Virtues language, um, I argue, is based on, uh, on, on certain agreed standards uh, based on reason they are there's a sense of a shared meaning that we can discuss and debate values language i think is far more emotional and this is something that that many people find hard to accept because they'd say no you know values are principles well they are to an extent but they are personal and the 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 feelings that i associate with my values aren't cannot be the basis for for making assertions about what I need or what I'm entitled to. So values are emotional statements about my beliefs or feelings or attitudes, but they can never be, um, as it were, normative. They can never be applied. They can never be ones that are accepted by society as a whole because it's impossible to erect any kind of shared meaning on the foundation of something that is personal. How can what is personal for me, how can what is personal for you, uh, or for any of your listeners, become the basis of a shared, uh, a, a shared morality, a shared culture, because we all have different points of view. When we often reflect on Australian history and going right back to uh, the First Fleet, and I know that Australia's history goes back further than that with First Peoples, but when the First Fleet arrived and when the current modern Australian culture began to be established, there is a sense in which we inherited the virtues that came from our British history and, of course, those were shaped by uh, the Great Awakening, by great Christian foundations in all of that. So when we're talking about the change that's happening here and the emergence of this values language, we are talking about something that we have been really the privileged inheritors of in Australia to have had these virtues. As you say, Peter Curdy, uh, we haven't been seeing martial law and tanks on the streets. Uh, that's not a part of who we've been as Australia. But this sort of foundation has given us a wonderful blessing of virtues in our heritage, but this is what we're seeing as being challenged now. What are your thoughts about the, the things that have established Australia as who we are? Well, you're right. These are being challenged now, and we can talk about those 
those principles that that informed the foundation of modern Australia in the broadest terms as being the principles of Western civilization. And we know that Western civilization uh, is being challenged in our universities and in sections of the media and in our schools. The things, the principles that undergird the life of a, of a Western country, such as Australia, and I say Western not because we are located in the West, but because we are a country that has been founded, the modern country has been founded on those principles of Western civilization. Those, uh, when those, those principles have increasingly come into question, and they have been challenged. They've seen as being about oppression or colonialism or imperialism um, or, or uh, the, the oppression of women, the oppression of minorities. And so uh, Western civilization at the moment is getting a very bad rap. And we see that playing out regularly in debates about free speech, for example, in our universities. I think that this goes to the heart in many ways of the problem, because once we start to question the foundations of our society, and I mean, you know, the deep foundations of our modern society, uh, I think there is a danger that we will pull everything down and have little to build to replace it. Uh, Let's talk about the sort of emotion, Peter, that has displaced reason and rights have turned into demands for acceptance and affirmation. So if you're only arguing from a values perspective, you've got a real crisis on your hands because there are all sorts of demands that maybe ought not be there. What are your thoughts about this sort of emotion and displaced reason? Well, I think emotion uh, is closely tied to the use of values language, because as you've said, and, and as we've been discussing so far, when you use, when I use values language, when I speak about values, what I'm really doing is asserting no more than what is important to me. I can't claim, um, I might want to claim, but I can't successfully claim that my values can be the values of anybody else. But that means that it's a, it, the, these emotional statements mean that it comes back to what I feel about something. And, if, and uh, we, we're seeing that with the rise of values language and the rise of emotionalism, we are getting a, we're tending to deal increasingly with hurt feelings. So when people say, uh, make a complaint that something has not happened that they think should happen or they've been treated in a way that they think they shouldn't have been treated, very often they will claim to have uh, been offended. Their feelings have been hurt. And on the basis of those hurt feelings, they assert that they are entitled to certain um, legal remedies. They're entitled to legal redress. We're seeing this in, in a number of very interesting ways. And a story that I came across just a week ago in Canada about the transgender activist who went for a certain kind of waxing uh, in, in a Canadian yeah. town um, was that the request for the service was declined by the provider, and the activist took this provider to court. Now, when I came across this story of, of, of a week or so ago, it was uh, tucked away in, in a Vancouver newspaper. It's now featuring in editorials in our dailies, in our nationals. The Australian had an editorial about this. You've got to think, well, what's happening here? Here is somebody who is demanding that a service is provided for them, and they're complaining that when that service was refused, their feelings were hurt. And on the basis of those hurt feelings, they would say that their rights have not been fulfilled and they are entitled to have those rights fulfilled. 
Where does that lead us to is the next question. What that leads us to is people demanding the provision of services, demanding that a photographer, a baker, a beautician, or whoever performs the services that um, that the person demanding them requires. And if they don't do that, if they choose not to provide that service, well, they can cop penalties at law. So values, emotion, hurt feelings, demand, I think that's on a continuum. That we, that Those are not individual links those are all threaded together and we're getting to this point where it's quite ridiculous that people who should be free in in commerce in daily business to if not refuse service to um to maybe refer to others or to claim that they don't have the skills uh, it should be open to people to say well i it's not for me to provide that service um, i cannot help you instead we are we're finding that law is being used to compel the provision of those services because the person who wants those services and demands those services claims that their feelings have been hurt that's going to lead to some really serious difficulty for us down the track, I think. And as so many predict, uh, there'll be case upon case upon case. Uh, if the government gets it wrong with their anti-discrimination legislation, because as you've been saying, uh, what happens when you have a weaponized position with the law and uh, all of these sorts of cases, like the ones you've just been talking about there, uh, they will be, uh, they will be happening left, right and center. Let's take a call. Jim is on the line from Kyabram in Victoria. Hello, Jim. Welcome. G'day, Neil. Long time since I've spoken with you. <laughs> I'm glad to hear from you, Jim. What are your thoughts? Yeah, likewise. Um, yeah, I, just the thing that's on my heart is just um, it, education. You know, if we don't uh, have education, explaining to people things like covenant. Covenant is something you don't talk about in society. You come into Christianity and it is just foreign or consecration. What are all these things? Big terms, big, big values, important values. How do we get across the values of those things? To simp- but to simplify it, we need to. Jesus came to simplify the old covenant with the new covenant, and and he and he said, "Greater works than these shall you do." We need to simplify. It. I thank God for some of the movies today. Courage, you know, the um, movie of the police, but having people understand covenant the importance of covenant you, you, someone can marry but what is it really about it's a binding contract at the con- conception of uh, or the uh, what do you call it the you know the whole act of the union of marriage is a blood binding covenant well it's meant to be and and unfortunately i've heard uh, even pastors say uh, a joke about there's no virgins in australia that's why jesus didn't come in that's 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 crass that is not that is not good value that is not a good thing to say in a church there are virgins in australia i've spoken with them some of them are over at the age of 40 yep. um you know and we are, you need to esteem and value that womanhood or that virgin aspect of life because it's Jim, so foreign you're making a get our head around you're making some good points here but you're uh, you're talking a very very important point that comes out of the things you're expressing there and this idea of covenant uh, because in christian communities and people who are interested in the language of the bible and the understanding that it is the covenant between god and humanity uh, which is really really important here we talk about a first covenant we talk about a second covenant but that word covenant of course a very legal term too and no doubt peter curdy will have some thoughts here but this idea of a covenant between God gives us a sense of God's transcendence. 
And if you have that sense of transcendence, then you can have an appreciation for the value of virtues that can be argued by reason. Uh, But if you deny the transcendence of God, then your understanding of covenant becomes very different too. Uh, Peter Curdy, Jim's making some good points here. What are your thoughts for the sorts of things he's sharing? Yes, thanks, Jim. I think you do. I want to come back to one of the first words you used in your question, which is education. I think that's a very, very important part of the way in which we shape people to be citizens in our society. Education is, is immensely important. And many parents want their kids to go to faith-based schools. They want them to go to Christian schools because they want their children to be brought up in accordance with the teachings of the Christian faith. They want the school to uh, to give expression to the Christian forms of life, and they want Christian teaching to be upheld and to be instilled in their children. Now, covenant is a very important part of of Christian teaching, but are schools, are faith-based schools, are Christian schools going to be free to make those distinctive teaching claims to teach those distinctive elements of the Christian faith to to pupils, as parents who enroll their kids in these schools want? This is why the question of religious freedom is so important in our country, because you can't have faith-based schools being told, you can't have a Christian school, for example, being told, well, you can't teach that because uh, there are people who are offended by that and it's a form of hate speech. Because a faith-based school, a Christian school, ought to be able to teach according to its principles. Now, if we remove the, 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 the Christian church's education services from this country, uh, it'll be a, a very sad day indeed, and many people will be very unhappy about that. But education and the forming of young people, the forming of their minds, the forming of their personalities and their characters so that they can take their place as responsible citizens in our society is, is terribly important. And, of course, going with that is, is, I agree with you, is an understanding of what covenant means for Christians. Thank you so much to Jim in Kyabram and our talkback line open 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to join our conversation, you can leave a note on Facebook too. Amanda says, the love of many is growing cold. Uh, Mike says, I think the cracks are repairable for sure. However, I don't know that they will be. I think our freedoms as Christians are under attack and will remain so until Jesus comes again. The world does not want God, and so it certainly won't live life his way. Uh, What would your thoughts be for someone like Mike, who's uh, really, uh, in some sense, uh, I'm not sure whether that's optimistic or pessimistic, but uh, there's there's an element of both in there. But uh, your thoughts for Mike there, uh, Peter? Well, I would say that Mike is approaching that with um, his heart full of Christian hope, which I think is right. And I would say that mine, I, I have a Christian hope for this too. Um, I, I do believe that the, the world is in God's providential care. Um, and although things may seem bad, I don't, I'm not a pessimist because I don't think Christians have really gr- the grounds to be pessimistic. What I do think is interesting is that as we have seen Christianity in particular come under pressure in this country so Christians are speaking out more and more about things that are important to them I mean in the most you know one of the most obvious examples is Israel Falau which is a whole nother um, a whole nother issue a whole nother set of questions but Christians are responding to the pressure that they're facing and speaking out and I have to say I think this is quite a good thing I think it's good that Christians uh, start to think, well, what is important to us? What do I believe? What is my, why is my faith important? And w- am I prepared to speak out in public in defense of my faith? 
increasingly Christians are doing that. And there was an elderly minister some years ago who, when I was bewailing the, the, the state of, um, of religious discourse in this country, said to me quite clearly that, in fact, uh, the Christian church flourishes when it's under pressure. And I thought those were very wise words from somebody who's been through all this before. And I think that we can take hope. I think we have to pray. I think we have to uh, be clear in our own minds about what the faith teaches and, and wh- how, what God requires of each of us as Christians. Um, but I do think that, uh, that in God's providential goodness, uh, these, these concerns will be addressed. I don't have a time frame for that, of course, and my time frame is certainly not God's time frame. But I think that Christians are being called to be to speak confidently and fearlessly about their faith. And I think that is a good thing for Christianity. I think it's a good thing for the churches in Australia. And I think it's a good thing for every single Christian in Australia. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. Let's take a call from Jonathan in Perth. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome. Yeah. Yeah, hello, Neil. Jonathan, what are your thoughts? I always think that uh, uh, sometimes some people don't get what I'm talking about. If you have agreement, God said, how can two work together as they agree? What we call covenant agreement, uh, promises, all these things. How can you work with people who disagree with God? And uh, one of the sad things we're doing, we leave everything with wrong people that live in nation. They are criminals, and they leave a nation in the wrong direction, and the Christians remain silent. So how can we have a, a Christian school? Because those who are in power, they're opposing God, and we put them in power, so they come with the law to, 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 to do everything away with God. That would have no value. That would Jonathan, have nothing. you're making a very good point here. How can... We work together unless we agree, and this might lead us, and uh, I know time has shortened our conversation, uh, Peter Curdy, but a response for Jonathan here, because when there is, uh, it's easy to talk about and perhaps even describe a polarizing disagreement between two sides, but how can we work together unless we agree, and uh, perhaps uh, even posing this idea of a question of how do we get onto a track where we can seek agreement rather than the polarized disagreement what are your thoughts for for jonathan well thanks jonathan i think it's a good question i would say that in any kind of society in any society you take not everyone is going to agree there is going to be disagreement we're all different people we have different concerns different needs different motives we're not going to agree about everything and i think that that's it's not necessary for us to worry about the fact that we don't agree. What I think is important is that we need to be able to learn to live with difference. We need to be able to tolerate the views of those with whom we disagree. The real problem, I think, for our society, for any society, comes when we fail to learn to live with difference, because then we have what I've called in other contexts a tyranny tolerance, that I will tolerate your points of view as long as those points of view coincide with mine. If they don't, I will not tolerate your points of view. Genuine tolerance means learning to live with difference. And what I see increasingly is a failure to respect the the, the, the points of view of people with whom we disagree. We should be able 
to uh, to tolerate and to accept the fact that somebody may have point uh, may have a, a point of view that I think is completely wrong and even offensive, but it's their right to hold it. When I try to silence somebody, I think that that is that's what makes things very hard and very bitter. I mentioned Israel Folau, just if I can come back to Israel Folau very quickly without getting into all the details of that case. It, we should have been able to say, well, that's Israel Folau's point of view. He's a fantastic football player. He's a terrific sportsman. He's got these uh, theological views. I don't agree with those theological views, but it's his right to hold them. We do not. I think many Australians do actually have that point of view, but leaders in, in, in commerce and industry have taken a very different view. And I think when we fail to live with difference, when we fail to respect the points of view of people with whom we disagree, that is what really poses a, a difficulty for our society, rather than everybody coming together and agreeing, because I don't think that's going to happen. Thank you so much to Jonathan in Perth. one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. if you would like to be uh, a person uh, involved in our conversation today and uh, you might be uh, you might be pressing it for time. Uh, let me come here, Peter, because this idea of what we do to actually create some level of common agreement, uh, this is challenging, but somehow or other, if we talk about the Christian side of the equation here for a moment, what sort of humble uh, positioning do we need to make to actually enhance the opportunity for agreement on virtues? Uh, is that a possibility, or uh, do we stand firm and uh, and uh, put up a barrier? Uh, what are your thoughts for moving forward here? And uh, we know that the other side might not be bending. The other side will keep on going with its emotive uh, feelings-based uh, values and uh, leading to all sorts of challenges. But what we ought to do uh, from our side, that's a question here. What are your thoughts for that? I think that a very good starting point is for Christians to talk about these things and not simply to keep silent. Because if nobody speaks up, no one will know that there are different points of view. And I don't think that it's something that should be left to church leaders. I don't think it's something that we should expect our um, our archbishops and our bishops and, and our senior pastors to do on their own. I think individual Christians who are concerned about these sorts of issues, these sorts of questions, need to talk about it. I think one of the great things about your program, Neil, is that you, you, you give important questions a thorough airing. When we know that other people share our concerns, when we know that we're not alone in those points, in the, in the feelings of discomfort or unease that we have, I think it becomes easier to broaden the conversation and and it gives people confidence to speak out and to let their point of view be known because they're not alone. I, I do, so it's, it's a simple thing. And, and some may say, well, you know, that, what does talking about it do? That doesn't make any difference. I think it does make a difference because I think we have to be prepared to speak publicly about what is important, what is uh, what, what is. Contra what we believe is contrary to our faith. We have to speak about those things that, that cause us concern. And I think we have to talk about, we have to be able to feel confident to talk openly about belief in God and what that means. Many people have, uh, who are not Christians have considerable misconceptions about what Christianity is and is not and what it stands for and what it does not stand for. And I think Christians, every single Christian has a, has a teaching responsibility, has a teaching duty to help others understand 
what Christianity is about, what it teaches, and what life as a follower of Jesus entails. And a very powerful point that when we talk about our Christianity, we are talking about an impact upon the culture, uh, the culture of Australia. And I note in your uh, article that you've written about this topic, and I'll point people to that, how they can actually read it themselves, uh, this idea of culture being a focus where we talk about a renewed understanding of our culture. So if we're talking about a culture that's fractured, that's cracked, uh, somehow or other we have to be able to talk about the things in the culture that have changed and what we might need to do to repair those. What are your thoughts for uh, you know ultimate uh, solutions here, Peter? And I know it's not easy, but uh, but certainly culture's got to be part of that. It does. I think ultimate solutions are... are are tricky. I, I, I don't have an ultimate solution that I can, I can deliver. But I, I would say this, that I think there is a great deal of sympathy for these points of view in Australia. If you just look at the census return, the, a great deal was made of the fact that people claiming no belief had risen, had, that had gone up, it was about 30%, I think, as I recall. But over 60% of Australians claimed a religious affiliation. Now, not all of them were Christians. There were Muslims and there were Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and Sikhs in there. But there are people who are sympathetic to a religious point of view. And I make the point that religious people are in the majority in Australia. And I think there is a great sensitivity and a great awareness and sympathy for the idea that we live our life under the authority of God or a God or a system of divine rules, a system of divine justice. This is not an outlier of an idea in Australia. And I think that when we remember that, it's easier to hold fast to the idea that actually our culture is infused with notions of, uh, of, of belief, of faith, of trust, and that, in fact, by talking about these questions, for Christians to talk about these questions, they're helping to enrich that, uh, that soil. Uh, I used that image earlier, that, that, that soil that I think is, is, is what culture is. It's like the soil, the sediment in which everything else grows. Well, Peter, we have run out of time. It's been just a privilege to take things a little deeper today and talk about these important issues in the way that our culture is shaped and even introducing this idea that there are some cracks in our culture that need some attention. Uh, Peter, if people go to the Centre for Independent Studies website, are they able to download a copy of your uh, most recent article? Is that uh, where they'd find that, that yes. article? Yes, it is. If they go to publications, they'll be, it'll be listed under recent publications and um, a PDF is, uh, is downloadable. It's there. The link is there. It's called... And if there's a problem, they can, contact, they can contact us directly. Okay. It's called Cracking Up, Culture and the Displacement of Virtue. And uh, you might need to take your time reading it, but certainly a worthy uh, document to read and to absorb some of those uh, fabulous insights that you've been able to introduce there. That's cis.org. Org.au, the Centre for Independent Studies, cis.org.au. Have a look for that article. And, of course, uh, Peter Curdy, a Senior Research Fellow in the Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society Program at the Centre for Independent Studies. Peter, thank you so much for taking some time to share these thoughts with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. A great pleasure, as always. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported.
Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.